0: We have a problem every year around MLK Day because the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for some reason, has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. He had the audacity to send out
1: the march has begun every day. We rise like the sun we fight till the battle is won.
2: Hi, I'm your guest host. No, I'm not the guest. I'm the host. Sharon Hinton, I'm the producer and the host. here on, on another level, we're here live in the fabulous studios of Boston media, and I have a wonderful guest. This is not his first, first time, not my first time, even though the way I'm talking right now you would think, I'm a newbie, I'm not. And my guest, who is an amazing, he's a friend of mine. He's an amazing guy. He's a brilliant guy. He's a genius. He doesn't think so. I do. And his name is Ed Gaskin. He's the executive director of greater, well, beautiful uptown Grove Hall, Greater Grove Hall Main Streets, my friend, hopefully your friend. Ed Gaskin, welcome, Ed. Yes, ma'am. And I'm, like, in the space of two weeks, like, you were one of my first guests on the podcast, Black Teachers Matter. We talked about Black Teachers We're going to loop that into this conversation tonight, talking about black women. And first I have to say to your face, while you're live, live TV, that I just think you're phenomenal and what you've done with Black Women Lead and being a black man, showing the importance of black women is just amazing. So if I had a little soundtrack, it would be like, yeah, yeah, and that kind of a thing. And thank you for being here tonight and talking about this phenomenal project, Black Women Lead. Now there's 200 Is it 210 or 200 banners? 212. 212 banners on both sides of Blue
1: Hill Avenue from Grove Hall to West Cottage Street? So it starts um, at the intersection of Columbia Road and Blue Hill. Ooh. And it goes for two miles down to Blue Hill and and Cottage Street. And you call it the Honor Mile? (laughs) You say the Honor Mile? Yes. uh, Honoring black women. Yes, yes. And so... It's, it's to flip it, right, to flip the script, because usually that's the part of town, you know, Grove Hall. And so if you think about a lot of the black women, they're actually from that neighborhood. So, you know, you and I have talked about black history and what happened there. So the sit-ins at the what's now the, the uh, Mother Caroline Academy, Ma Dixon, uh, Bishop Nellie Yarborough, uh, uh, you know, the Rubina Guscott Building is there, Terry, o, Terry Williams with the One United Bank, uh, Burns. So yep. if you just go down there. A lot of the black women, um, Beulah, Providence, are actually on that street. So now we're saying the honor mile is sort of in honor of all the contributions these black women made, and most of them are right there.
2: Most of them are right there, but there were what, 600 names or 400 names? or something? 600 names submitted. 600 names, but you only had... Fun. See, I'm trying to get you all up to speed because, you know, can we get the camera? Thank you. I'm trying to get people up to speed. I just... <laughs> I know a lot more about this than you do. This is a project he's been working on since 2019. And so when he was on my podcast, even though I had heard the stories about it, to see it there and to hear the stories about how it was impacting the women and the children who knew some of the women, know some of the women, because they're not all dead. Some of us are still alive. And to know the history and the beautiful portraits of these women. Tell us some of the stories. I know... You said that there was women in your life that inspired you. Tell us about that piece and how it translated to this piece.
1: Well, I'm going to start out by saying my own true confession about a a man that really wasn't that informed. (laughs) (laughs) So, so You went woke. (laughs) Well, because um, what happened is when I was talking to black people, I was talking about who it is that we should feature they usually gave us the same 10 people, right? So they'd say Sarah Ann Shaw, Melinda Cass, uh, Elmett Lewis, and they would say roughly plus or minus 10 people. And so I thought, well, 100's got to be like more than enough. It's got to be like way more than enough. And so I thought if I went back to the 1700s up to the present, that that would be my way of getting to 100. Um, What I didn't realize, and what I find that other people didn't realize, is that there's so many more black women that are phenomenal, that you haven't heard of, um, that, uh, anyway. So that's how you end up getting to 600. So people have said to me, uh, like when I said I want to do the next 200, people are like, oh, you can't do that. That'll deteriorate the quality. I said, you have no idea. (laughs) Like, the second 200 will be the same quality as the first 200. There's so many women. (laughs) But there's just a lot more, there's just literally a lot more women out there and there's two things. One, from the um, schools, mm-hmm. like, that's why I said from the teachers, they're the ones that told me to try to um, make, do something that we can bring into the classroom. Because they thought that there was more role models for little boys than there was for little girls. And when I was at the thing for uh, Mother Carolina Academy, and I heard the students say what it was like as a little girl, Going to school, and you walk past all these black women every day on your way to school. Wow. And so some are judges, some are doctors, some are lawyers. Yes, but some are uh, you know the first black women firewoman, the first black we had women an astronaut too. too. Uh, there's a there's a black woman football player up there. And so whatever you want to do, hairdresser, there's two hairdressers, there's three librarians, nurses. And that's the other thing that I—it w- was a surprise is the different groups all identified. So like, hey, and they included the nurses. The nurses never make it on a list like that. And um, Nora Batten said the same thing about the police officers. Oh, they included police officers because the first black woman detective is up there. Um, But also what I found interesting is people so have identified as a project, they're like, there's six people from Hyde Park over here. (laughs) I'm like, like, who went through and checked out where they were from? And I was like, wow, okay. But then you talked
2: about, so let's talk about the selection process and moving forward, because there was was an intense kind of a cost. And everybody, in the beginning, you told me everybody wasn't really for it. Like you had to really... So the money came from unexpected places, the support came from unexpected unef- uh, places, and also the support came with not the strings that a lot of that kind of money comes with. Tell us about that.
1: So the 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 thing was, when I uh, went to the foundations, the usual foundations that you'd go to for money like that, um, they were like, uh, they really just didn't understand the project. Mm. So they're like, well, it's not public art. In their mind, it wasn't public art because it wasn't like a mural or a sculpture, like the kind of thing they usually think of in terms of public art. Um, and they didn't really think of it as placemaking because I really wasn't, quote-unquote, activating a specific No, I, I asked
2: you to, to define that before because a lot of people, like you're in that space where you would hear that, and I'm in that space where I would hear that. But for those people that don't know what that means, get, define that like public art versus placemaking versus like an event.
1: Right. So, for example, when the Grove Hall Plaza, so that's the plot of land that's between Flames Restaurant and the church. So when they renovated that, that's like a little parklet. And so and I they got rid of the mural there. Hello. Yeah. That's another story. We won't get into that. But <laughs> So what I wanted to do uh, was I said, well, geez, you know, if you're at Downtown Crossing and Milk Street, you know, like all those kind of places, they have uh, music there, right? So I had a summer concert series in that square. Um, and so that would be an example of placemaking, where I created an event, an event right on that location. and Because I wanted people in Grove Hall to have the same amenities as people in other neighborhoods. So that's, a, that's a recurring theme. So that's why when I first learned that there was um, a relationship between economic development and public art, and then I went to what they had that time, the Boston Arts Commission had a map of all the public art in the city. It had all these red dots in downtown Boston on top of each other. And then for Grove Hall, they had one red dot. And it was a painted utility box. And I said, that means that the city's investment in public art in Grove Hall is $300. And so I said, we live in a public art desert. And so that's when I started I got the utility boxes painted. I remember that. I did the murals that so like horrible the, picture of Prince. The, oh, the, the pro <laughs> the, like the pro black, those murals, the Love Thyself. Wait, wait, wait. go back. Yes. Because Pro
2: Black is the name of the artist. Yes. But the murals are if, if you're going down Blue
1: Hill Avenue, yes. you see this young yes. boy with the yes. with the bubbles. Yes. Okay. So this was all part of my way of trying to make more art to the community. Because my feeling was is that Every we, The people in Grove Hall pay the same property taxes as anybody or else liar. in the city, and so therefore they should have the same amenities and the quality of life, so they should have art. And so I just started working with people like Echo Homes trying to do some more stuff to bring art to the neighborhood. I did a previous project where we took the bus shelters and um, we had photographers, black photographers, Basically, display their artwork in the bus shelter. So mm. I did 24 of those, and so now they're all images of blacks, all kinds of scenes of life. In fact, the guy that was um, putting up the posters the day I was out there, he said, "You know, I worked at this job for 10 years. I've never put up an ad that had a black person in it." And so, so he was just excited that Collect all girls. Oh God! He was just excited that now he had all these black people he could put up. And in, this is a black guy or white guy? Black guy. So he was quite proud. So it meant something for him. These contributing wow. So I'm just saying. So this is the, this was in the series of stuff that we did on public art. So for me, when you look and you just see this long train of images of black women done by black artists, and it's, for me that is an example of public art. That's why I I said I call it my Cristo. My my Uh large public art exhibit that extends for two miles. It's now the largest public art exhibit in the city. Are you serious? I'm serious. But that's not how, but, okay. But anyway, so the point was, when I went to the foundations, they didn't understand what this project was. So they all said, this is a nice project, but we're not funding it. We don't even know what category it goes in. And so when I... um, I'd got an introduction to the, the Kraft family, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they
2: asked... Now, Kraft is the New England Patriots.
1: Yeah, so, so I should have been more clear. So I'd got an introduction to the Kraft family, as in Robert Kraft family, mm-hmm. and um, they asked, was it still available? They thought it was a great project. And so uh, they invited me to come in and uh, meet with Robert Kraft, and uh, one of the stories is how I'm meeting with him, he's talking, whatever, and he says... You know, you you misspelled uh, Ruth Batson's name. And I was like, how would Bob Kraft know the correct spelling for Ruth Batson? But anyway, uh, they did and um, they loved the project. And so they funded it to do uh, the first 100. Mm -hmm. But the problem was in myself, in terms of the criteria, um, there was far more than 100 people that were qualified. So I had a tough choice because I was going to 140, 150, 160. And I was like, how am I ever going to reduce this back to 100? And I said, I don't want to... But wait, wait, you wanted to reduce it back
2: to 100 because of the money and yes. the cost of the... Pro- okay.
1: Um, so, but I, I just didn't like that idea because mm-hmm. I felt everybody who was like qualified, like I should have been as many qualified people as possible. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want them to be saying, well, this person's more liked, more powerful, more influential, more popular. So I wanted... Because that sort of like defeated the whole purpose of getting people like... The woman that um, had fifty foster children, mm. so she probably wouldn't win any popularity contests. But she would amongst those kids. <laughs> she would for those kids. Mm-hmm. So there were people like that. Uh, I think like uh, Makia Mejia Gomez, uh, Leah Randolph. Yeah, you know who you think? Okay, these people are making major contributions. You can't like anyway. Can't so
2: quantify I'm, it really. Yeah,
1: so I want to make sure that they were included. So then I said, okay, I'm gonna take a leaf of faith. I'm gonna try to get go to two hundred. And then hopefully that will work out. And I, if I could have did 300, I would have did 300 because I, I had plenty of people.
2: Now, so we're going to show, um, if you guys can show a clip, I want to, this is taken on such fire. And we have permission, by the way, to show these other video clips. Uh, Channel 7, Channel 25, the Bay State Banner. It's black like Enterprise. On this black, black, black Enterprise, wow. And if we can show some of these clips, some of this information. Um, this is, okay, go for it.
3: With hopes as high as these light poles on Blue Hill Avenue.
1: When I started, all the foundations said no.
3: And more than 600 names and stories of black women in Boston sent to him. Greater Grove Hall Main Street's executive director Ed Gaskin set out to honor 200 black women leaders with these
1: banners. As women and as black women, I feel that well, we ha- have to rewrite the narrative and what we know about them.
3: From Susie King-Taylor in the 1800s to Gwen Eiffel a present time. Gaskin says Representative Chris Worrell and the New England Patriots Foundation helped finally secure the funding he needed.
4: Frankly, when we brought it to, you know, when it was brought to myself, my dad, my brothers, it really, no, it was a no-brainer. It's let's share these stories with everyone so people don't forget what these incredible
3: women have done. Rep Worrell tells me he wants his daughter to look up and be inspired. And he's working to secure funding in the state budget so that the project continues.
0: I took my daughter and my son, and we were stopping traffic at 7 o'clock at night on Blue
1: Hill Ave, people were, were beeping. And she was like, Dad, did I see, is that Marilyn Chase? Like, yes, yes, and we go to the next one. I don't know who that is. Now it's time to educate who who these people are.
3: One of the women honored was Miriam Manning, who fostered kids up until the age of 95.
1: I've worked with children,
2: and I really appreciate working with them. Uh, And I enjoy children. Um, You know, it's my thing that I love to work with children.
3: Boston 25 was there back in 2019 when Miriam retired from fostering in Boston after 27 years, now 99 years old. I asked her by phone what message she would have for the young people seeing her banner. Do the best
2: you can for your life. Continue to live, pray, and and ask the good Lord to help you day by day.
3: In Boston, I'm Crystal Haynes. For your local station, Boston 25 News.
2: And thank you, Crystal Haynes. Um, Having a black woman in the media, we talked about Sarah Ann Shaw in Boston at WBZ. um, And I worked at WBZ, and I know her. She's known me all my life. And so what does it mean when you can actually identify? You told me some stories. We talked about how people can walk down and recognize people. And some of these people are alive, like you'll see Nora Bastone. She's still a cop. And then what about some of the people that see their faces up there? What have been their reactions? I'm, I'm
1: surprised. They're, they're so overwhelmed. And I, don't, I I, still don't understand that. So I talked to uh, Deborah Jackson, the president of Cambridge College. And she's like, oh, I'm so honored to be selected and to be with all these women. And I, These are my peers. There's women up there that I've looked up to my whole life, and now I'm considered one of them. and just means so much to me. And I said, but you're the president of the college. He said, you know, you must have tons of awards and recognition by now. She said, it's not the same, It's not thing. the same. And so your people and,
2: and the mm-hmm. other thing is that we're so used to um, honoring. I mean, no shade, but honoring people who are dead to be able to honor people who are actually living and still doing the work. And then you I think you told me a story about someone was looking out the window and every morning they
1: look out the window, and they can see. Yeah, so that was an interesting one because when we were putting the things up, obviously uh, Grove Hall has the largest amount of public housing in the city. So there was a woman that was in one of the public housing units who leaned out and she said, I want one of those. And I said, Well, which one do you want? Because I was thinking that she wanted the one that, that she was related to. She said, I don't care. I just want something that says Black Women Lead in my living room. Wow. <laughs> and she said, This, with all the color and stuff, she said, This really beautifies the neighborhood, which I've also heard. Um, so yes, yeah, so I've been, I've been, If you were like an artist and you're creating and you had some sculpture someplace and people reacting, you couldn't have gotten a more positive reaction from people Uh, in every dimension, from children who talk about what it's like, the people who are honored, their families. There's people like, you honored my grandmother. I will do anything I can to support this project, you know. Wow. And so you think about how people like their mother and their grandmother and stuff like that. And so, you know, they're the ones that come out to your little league baseball game and your Mm -hmm. recital. And now it's the flip. It's like now you you can honor them. And, uh, and, and some of them, like I've heard some of them are bedridden. They haven't been able to get out of their house to see it, but they're oh. so excited that they haven't been forgotten. They're just, I, I've all, seen social media posts. Like I remember Nora
2: Baston was underneath hers, and it was on Facebook, and then you see the people commenting on that.
1: Um, she, had one, she had like over 800 likes within the first couple of days. On wow. Her but I, it, it's, it's just been overwhelming. Like one woman said... She she was turning the corner and she saw somebody photographing up in the sky and she wanted to see what they were photographing. They were taking a picture of the banner. And she said, when I looked up and I saw the banner, and then I looked and I said, she said, I looked down the street and all I saw were black women. She said, it gave me goosebumps. She said, the hairs of my neck stood up. I never expected to see anything like that. Wow. You got people traveling, people, you know, family members. Anyway, so just. Again, beautiful, amazing, wonderful, tearful, joyful, spectacular, like all the kinds of things that people would say as they've experienced it. And people have said, you know, if you drive down the whole thing or you walk down the whole thing, they're like, you get this feeling that it never ends, like one after the other, Mm. after the other, after the other. And then you start to realize the, the impact of black women, like collectively and as a group. And so, which is great because that's what's intended. There's a lot of women that have made the city what it is today. Did you you know that it was gonna take on this life of its own? I did not, Mm. I did not. because, again, I would have thought, and again, I won't name all the names, but there's some people there who have so many awards. There's Emmy winners. There's Grammy winners. There's people in the Hall of Fame. You're thinking, you've already got like an Emmy. Like, why would you be, or Grammy, why would you be excited about having your banner on Blue Hill Avenue? But it, it's, it means something to people. And I, so I just never anticipated that. Now, you said black teachers had a big part of this. And so, is there
2: going to be a book? Is there going to be a curriculum that was already generated from this for the?
1: Well, there's two things. So, um, one is when we did the original proposal, uh, we had a phase two, which was to do something for the schools. Mm-hmm. And um, the Kraft Family Foundation in the agreement. So they wanted the right a first refusal to fund future projects. Oh, wow. So they were already thinking ahead. They said, so we see where this is going. Like I said, they were ahead of everybody else on this. And uh, t- some other things happened. So Northeastern University has uh, got a group of people who are helping work on it now. They're trying to create Wikipedia pages for all the women there. Wow. Um, Boston Public Library has a special collections person there. Working on it. So we have um, some other meetings coming up. We've already taken out all the pictures and as we speak We're getting like one paragraph bios done Mm. for everybody So that at a minimum you can have like a picture of the person's portrait their title credentials um and then a little paragraph about them so we might make that with that we might that make a small version of that and make flashcards we make make larger do you have ones. A website yet we don't have a website i didn't want to create a website i figured i would just do the wikipedia thing and call <laughs> it a day but um but yeah so the answer to the thing is i'm hoping that uh somebody out there who has an interest in curriculum development or design would be able to do this mm-hmm. because i felt that it taught all the key lessons. So in other words, you have black women in there who are escaped slaves, freed slaves, Mm -hmm. um, women who worked on the Underground Railroad, all the way up to the present time. And so you have examples of resilience and overcoming obstacles and all that. And in whatever career you pick, there's a black woman from here. That's already done that. And if there isn't, then then you can be a first too, just like they were first. So you've got all these pioneers and trailblazers and presidents and founders. Like you, you anyway, it's just overwhelming. And the other thing that's overwhelming is you a lot of times you know you think, what are you gonna be when you grow up? New mm-hmm. You see how many people are two or more. So you look at somebody like Jackie Jenkins Scott, two different categories, Liz Walker, two different categories, Gloria White Hammond, two different categories, a doctorate of minister. And you just go on and on and on and, on and say, geez, there's a lot. Of super talented women, they're like successful in two fields, not just one field. They're masters of more than one. Exactly. So you're like, wow, these guys are really demonstrating leadership and black excellence and all that stuff. And so, what a but better way to bring that into the classroom for 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 students and and in terms of like all of motivation and and role models and legacy and all those kind of things that you want to teach. So do you hear the do you hear the response of? Why didn't I know
2: about that? How come I'm just learning about that? From who? From everyone, From especially from children. Like, why didn't they teaching this in school? Well, I, and
1: that's me. <laughs> I, I'm learning about these people. It's like, I didn't know this. I didn't know that. So when you read the stories, and again, again, I just want to have to explain this. Like, there's... The people that I haven't even got to yet. Like, I'm just like chomping at it, But that's why I wanted, as crazy as it is, I'm trying to do the next 200. Because in the first 200, it doesn't include Harriet Tubman, it doesn't include Sojourner Truth, it doesn't include Betty Shabazz. And I could just go right down the list of black women in Boston that have had an impact.
2: And a lot of people who actually have ties to Boston. Yes. So the other thing is, and I've heard a comment, and this was from, um, like, the, the, this, this comment was from a couple of mothers of sons. They said, let's not forget about the men. Is this gonna go on to actually include black men lead to?
1: I don't think so. Uh. I don't know that I would do that. Okay. Well, because maybe it should be a woman that does a black woman. Well, I just feel that I've got a lot of women to go. (laughs) So Um. and I and remember, most of the most of the women are are basically most of them are 60 or over. So this is almost like a seniors project. Mm. So all those young dynamic black women. I think
2: Dr. Heman may have a problem with that, but go ahead. (laughs)
1: Well, I've, there's a few. But there
2: obviously, are, but even her daughter, I'm Mariama. Right, so, so second
1: so, generation. Right, so for example, so Kim Janey, Mary Kim Janey, or Ruth Rollins, or there's people like that that wouldn't be that old, but they're. You know, you can't not include the first black woman mayor, right? right? So, But by and large, in terms of the criteria, the feeling was that if you're 60, 70, 80, 90, you have twice as many years of actually doing yeah, stuff true. as somebody younger. But I would love to do a project with all these next generations of women. Like you said, Mary White Hammond could be, um, that could be like a old group. That could be the next group.
2: So would the, other, would the old banners come down and new banners would go up, or would you extend it? Up to another part of Blue Hill Avenue, which is not part of Grove Hall and Main Street.
1: That's true. Somebody asked me, so "Are you going to go all the way to Pan? Uh I don't know. That gets um, that gets a little harder because it's not my district. But um, I'm actually looking at different places for them. Mm. So, for example,
2: and what about Nubian Square, which is named Nubian Square, and there's none of these women's banners that are that far down.
1: That's true. So, for example. Um, Again, this is all my, my visionary ideas, so we don't okay. know if we will or won't make them happen. But um, I'm, I'm considering the TD Garden. Mm. So th- I'm thinking of it this way. Like, think of it right now, everybody up there is a, is a man. So hanging from the rafters, all those jerseys, all those numbers, oh, the Celtics yeah. jerseys, the Bruins jerseys. So, what if it was all black women's, like all, at least for a game or something?
2: Um, Or the airport. I mean, my daughter and I were in Atlanta, and there's all this black history in the airport, so there's international people going through there.
1: That's a possibility. I I have, uh, I'm going to try to do it at Gillette uh, they told me, I said, so we'd love to do that, but there's no space. <laughs> I, so, cause obviously people pay for every square inch mm-hmm. out there, but I found a spot. So I'm going to like, Uh-oh. I'm going to say, Hey, here's a spot. Now
2: was there, I don't think this was up in time enough for the NAACP convention. It wasn't. Right?
1: So they asked me to try to get it up, but I couldn't get all this stuff done, but they wanted me to.
2: And then are the, is the craft family willing to fund the next, uh, leg of this? Or are you going to have to find someone else?
1: Well, uh, I'm assuming that I've got to find somebody else. <laughs> I haven't asked them, but mm-hmm. I'm proceeding as though I have to find somebody else. So I'm taking, who else do I know that could be a sponsor for this project? So it's an expensive project, it's over $100,000. That's not expensive it for multi millionaires. <laughs> it isn't for them, but it's expensive for me. So mm-hmm. it's not like trying to go door to door, you know. Uh, like, so it has this I can't up? do it caning on the, on the stoplight with a little cup.
2: Don't play that cheap. Some of those guys have some money. So. Has this project actually um, caused other people to want to fund it? Has that happened yet? No. Oh. <laughs> so this is this is an opportunity to happen. Um, so in, so if someone wanted to, if someone sees this and they want to donate some money or they want to support this,
1: how would they get in contact with you? Well, we have a GoFundMe page for the Greater Grove Hall, the Black Women Lead Banner Project. And I'm also interested in nominations, because I'm still getting great nominations. So I'm telling you, there's just so many people that you don't know about. and somebody sends in their name, you're like, who's this person? did you look them up, and you're like, oh, my God. Or, or somebody sends the information with them, you're like, wow. Because a lot of our history is getting lost. Mm-hmm. So you know, going back to your earlier comment, what I was trying to do was make sure that... Um, that we had some way to change the narrative. Mm. So I felt that the narrative on black women, either from white media or from black media, if you think of some of the hip hop songs and stuff like that, that we needed to change the narrative that was out there in period. And so this was a different narrative for that. And so this was one way of, of approaching it. And you're touching generations. Touching generations.
2: And you don't know, but planting these seeds of positive images of the children that are watching this and the greatness, seeds of greatness that you're doing. Wonderful. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just glad to say that I know you, that you're a friend of mine. And I always thought you had great ideas. And I'm glad that there are other people that think that, too. So kudos. I see. Ed Gaskin, executive director of Greater Grove Hall Main Streets. Um, you're on another level with us here, live on BNN Media. My name is Sharon Hinton. We have another fantastic guest. He's a man, because I love black men, strong black men. I'm a woman. I I can say that. It's my show. And when we take this short break, um, we're going to come back with another man that is doing some phenomenal things in the community and some things that you can support and participate in at the end of this week. We're live here in BNN Media on another level. I'm Sharon Hinton, and we'll be right back. Thank you, Ed
4: hanging on posts along Blue Hill Avenue, young students help decide which women would be honored there.
3: And organizers say they hope to inspire the next generation to create their own legacy in the city.
2: I could see women of color like that look like me being actually special in the neighborhood because usually there's not that there's not that much representation of black women.
3: A special day for students at the Mother Caroline Academy in Boston. They got to see 212 banners up on part of Blue Hill Avenue each recognizing a black woman who had an impact in Boston, whether a pioneer in her field or a leader who did something special for others. They represent my culture and how to appreciate all the other women that have done something for us in our lives. The young girls helped decide who would be honored as part of the project called Black Women Lead. It showcases women from a wide range of backgrounds and career paths. You'll see doctors, lawyers, judges,
1: professors, uh, elected politicians, there's two hairdressers. Yeah. There's three librarians, so the point being, no matter what career opportunity you pick, there's been a black woman from this neighborhood, this community that's already gone and succeeded.
3: It's funded by the Kraft family and the Patriots Foundation, and the
1: banners are something Josh Kraft is proud of.
4: Their leadership, their heart, and their commitment has touched not only this community, but the whole, great, the whole city of Boston and the whole state of Massachusetts.
3: Some of the women who are on the banners talked with the students. They hope the project inspires them to achieve great things. For them to be able to see women who look like them, this is, this is black history in action, in real time, to show all these amazing women. So for me, it's truly honoring.
2: These young ladies behind me, hopefully one day there'll be a banner here for them as well.
3: Now, organizers say they are developing a QR code for each of the 212 women that people can scan and then learn more about them.
4: Interested in becoming a radio DJ? Boston Neighborhood Network's 102.9 FM is offering a course of radio production that can get you started. For more information, please head over to bnnmedia.org backslash services backslash workshops.
1: Today we face an unprecedented
2: crisis. Tens of millions of refugees have been forced from their homes, but you can make a difference. Turn disruption and despair to hope and opportunity. Even small amounts make a big difference. Provide shelter, support, or jobs in your community. The more we understand, the greater sense of belonging we create. Act now. Visit supportcrisisrelief.org.
4: Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration, historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, that we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison For that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows The kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. There's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty, and we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly
2: established to begin with. Welcome back to On on Another Level. We're live here at BNN Media. I'm your host and uh, producer Sharon Hinton. Another phenomenal young man, I'll call him a young man. He is the executive director of the Office of Returning Citizens for the city of Boston. Welcome my friend, David Mayo. You're amazing. And I haven't known you that long, but you're amazing. I love, love, love strong black men. I absolutely love it. And and, and I'll tell you why. As a woman who's a strong woman, and, and, I, and so physically, when I first met you, you're impressive. And, but I know the complications. My brothers are like 260 pounds. And I know the, the spaces they have to navigate when the world is afraid of them. Um, and so I've watched you navigate this space and have such a heart for returning citizens. And um, and bringing this conference together... The Pathways to Reentry Conference um, this Saturday, October 28th at Northeast University, in collaboration with the, the school, well, Northeastern's Criminal Justice, School of Criminal Justice, and what's the other one? The other one is criminal criminology. criminology. And I haven't known you that long, but I'm watching how you're moving in this space. And so my hat is off to you, my heart is off to you. And it's an honor to, to partner with you and being working underneath you and watching you navigate this space. So thank you. Um, Where did this idea come from to do this? Because I think this is the first, and I'm from Boston, I think this is the first time I've ever seen a conference like this happen. Where did this come from, and what do you hope hope to accomplish?
0: Well, the conference was birthed out of the idea that returning citizens have, have so many so many barriers to reentry that they have to navigate and so what was really burdensome to me was the idea that no one has given an idea of how to perform that you Mm -hmm. know everybody gives them the resources or points them towards resources refers them to different areas but nobody says hey look what is it that you need most what are the areas that you need to work on first? Have you considered doing this or are you thinking about this? Uh, and then then directing them on how to find those places. And so the conference was birthed out of the idea of having a pathway for returning citizens to where they can look at the areas in which they have to struggle in, in, to, in order to beat recidivism and, and build a stable life. And then the idea of how do we do it? You know, some people, some people need housing when they come home. Some need mental health more than they need housing. Some people need um, employment more than they need housing. Or, so it's, it's an individual approach to how we can re- help returning citizens map out their path. Mm-hmm. It's not that we are um, telling them where to go or, or what to do. It's here. Here are the areas. We all know that there's a great need for housing in the Boston area. There's a great need for employment for anyone who's coming home trying to establish their life. There's a great need for mental health. There's a great need for family reunification. There's a great need for education and job development. Mm. So we, we put all of those together and we said, now you determine what are the things that you need most? And it gives them now the, the idea that it's my show. Mm. You know, I get to orchestrate my own path. No one just tells me how to do it or tells me that I should be doing this or I should be doing this. This is my path. I can create my path in the direction that I need to go. So it was birthed out of that idea. And not just another um, resource fair. You know, we're always seeing resource fairs or, or gatherings where everybody gets together and says, these are all the things that you need hmm yeah now we now we're talking about what is it that you specifically need it's like the difference between if we we're having dinner an appetizer in the meal it's and like now you know a little bit and, and we've come together so now let's make it happen yes and so that's that was my goal in this because returning citizens are the most I, I tell everyone this that they are the most resilient people in the world mm. give them give them a, a a hammer and some toothpicks and they'll build a house I mean, give them the opportunity, and they'll seize the world. Mm. Give them the tools that they need, and they'll conquer anything. Because they've been, they've been to the lowest state that you could possibly be in, treated in the worst manner that you could possibly be treated Repeatedly. in. Repeatedly. And, and everyone, no one has the expectation that they're ever going to come out. So to watch them come out and to take control of their lives and have the tools and the keys to really, really perform that, it is a privilege and an honor just for me to be in a room. To watch them work, to watch them build their lives, and to be able to assist in any way possible. Let's it talk is about just my
2: one goal. of the people that you're that's going to be in the room, Conan Harris. Oh,
0: I need to bring him up. Conan is, um, he's like my, he's like my superhero. I mean, the guy came from absolute, absolute depravity of life and turned his life around. Now he is a major leader, not only in the state, but in the countries. He's lauded at the, at the White House to, have, to sit down and talk with congressmen and, and uh, politicians about how to, how to um, assist returning citizens and how to build programs. And not only just returning citizens, but the dude is amazing. I mean, just to sit and talk with him, I, I talk with him often, and um, just to sit and talk with him, his mind is always. Always and he's there as a plenary speaker. Oh yeah, he's I I had to get him as, as my plenary as as my keynote. He's he's such an inspiration not only to myself but to returning citizens in this community. I mean, he is just that. He's just there. There are people that all you have to do is sit in the room mm. and people just just gravitate to them mm. because of their wisdom, their experience, and their their open heart. And he's real. Really, yeah. To really, really touch the lives of people, he is open. He is an open book and an open heart. And I, I really appreciate the friendship that that I have. So him. he's going to be starting off the day, and then we've got workshops, and then
2: we've got an, a luncheon speaker panel that includes Judge
0: Margaret Brennan, amazing justice leader, um, advocate for returning citizens, just a brilliant mind. Um, I think you were reading her book, and yes. you're like, you and came I'm waiting for it to office. sign it. <laughs> to the office on fire david i read a book oh my god and you told me personally how she has yes. affected your life and how she was a major i would pardon. not be
2: here if it was not for her at 17 she kept me from going to jail wow yeah i would not be here i mean i wouldn't even know if i was alive i was 17 <laughs> and she was the judge on the bench really yeah i didn't know that part well you know yeah she was the judge on the bench and my life was in the balance and uh and she she case dismissed. She's learned her lesson. Boom. Wow. And then I'm also the child of a person who was incarcerated. My first memories of my dad at two and a half were visiting him in prison and asking my mother, how come daddy's not coming home with us? Mm. So this is close to my heart. And so yeah. that's when I say it's an honor to work with you and assist you to do this. I know for a fact. And one of the people that you're you're having there is um, Associate Professor Patrice Collins, who's actually going to be talking about the effect of incarceration on children. We don't think about the fact that there's so many women who are mothers that are taken out of. I mean, you've got the fathers that are taken out of the home, but also the mothers who nine times out of ten, unfortunately, for black families from 1980 on um, before 1980, most black parents were in the home, the mother and the father. And then that's another whole show about the governmental policies that actually destroyed the black family. But then when you have the majority, now 85% of black children being raised by black women, and those black women are incarcerated, you are really destroying the foundation of the family and the community. Talk about the devastating, because I know you see it up front. You're talking to people every day, and those people who are talking to those people, what does that mean
0: when the, the guts and the foundation of a family is destroyed? So when, let's talk about the women first. Um, Women incarcerated is probably one of the most hidden, hidden, non-talked-about um, disgraces mm. um, to our community. Number one, women have been the backbone of our society for a very long time. Before, before we could even measure, they were the backbone of our community. They, they were the ones who nurtured and raised us and taught us the values and the creativity that we have as children. But to watch an incarcerated woman go through the challenges mm. of number one coming out of jail but number two what is also a um, unspoken truth is that women lose custody of their children when they go to jail they don't they're not they're not given to someone else they're not the mothers lose custody of their children and they have to fight for their children once they come out of jail along with having to find a job and along with having to be productive in community along with having to uh, Come, come against all the misnomers and all the all the downgrading and all the um, stigmatization that goes on with them. They have to deal with the ideology that I may never have my child again. Mm. Now Your you want to talk about you want to talk about disparity. Mm. And you want to talk about discouragement and, and hopelessness. A mother who has not her child and has to find a way to get them. Just that alone coming from incarceration, it's it's heartbreaking.
2: And then the women, some women have their children in prison and then lose custody.
0: Absolutely. And so the the journey, like I said, returning citizens um, have a resilience and a fortitude and a and a character that is unmatched. And I know I know we're supposed to stigmatize them and I know we're supposed to make them Make them horrible people, but the reality of it is, is most returning citizens are not returning citizens because of their crime. They're concerned. They're returning citizens because of a lack of support, mm. a lack of a lack of provision, a lack of health, and a lack of mental health. There are so many returning citizens who had who had mental health issues, mm. who had drug issues, who are who are stigmatized and were treated wrongly in our community, given fake justice, and 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 treated treated with ill racism and just all of that just manifested in their crime. Now, I'm, I'm not gonna say that, that, that their crime was, um, well, crime is right or mm. doing crime is right, but I am gonna say that there is, there is a whole lot of stigmatization and a whole lot of hidden factors that, that feed into the criminology that goes on in our community. So if you're just
2: tuned in, you're listening to Huh, an amazing young man i can still call you a young man david mayo who is the executive director of the office of returning citizens here at the city of boston uh, we're live here on another level at bnn media my name is sharon hinton there's some information uh, in a little video roll-in that we're going to do and then we're going to come back for the time that we have here live with david mayo and on another level stay with us
3: It is traumatic to a community when Disproportionately, there is an absence of men in the community because so many of them are serving such long sentences. You know, and having a parent that's in prison, you don't have your mom supporting you through through life or you don't have your dad encouraging you in ways that are necessary to develop. They're also wearing the burdens of their parents' crime. They didn't commit a crime. My mother was incarcerated when I was younger. I was a baby, and I went into foster care. I was in my mom's belly when he went to jail. When my dad gets out, I'll be 15. My daddy's so far. They gave my dad 20 years, and that's a long time.
4: A growing number of American prisons are now contracted out as for-profit businesses to for-profit companies. The companies are paid by the state, and their profit depends on spending as little as possible on the prisoners and the prisons. The reason why we like the private prison industry from a stock investment perspective, we think that there's substantial opportunity for growth. In 2004, there was about 6% market share. In 2014, 8.3%. For the past 10 years, they gained about
0: 35%. It's an interesting and compelling investment opportunity for a lot of investors today.
2: And we're back here on another level. My name is Sharon Hinton. Um, so 2.5 million people are incarcerated in the United States, more than any other industrialized country in the world. And we're supposed to be the land of the free, the home of the brave. For those of you who don't know about the 13th Amendment, legally, after slavery, there was a constitutional amendment that made it okay for people to, um, be enslaved, And so there was also a thing called the Black Codes, where laws were changed to criminalize black people for being black. There's a lot of information, but you Google everything else. The 13th Amendment, there's movies if you don't want to read about it. There's information. Why are you not getting this information in the schools? That's another whole show for another time. What you will learn about today is the Pathways to Reentry Conference that's happening, happening Saturday, October 28th, from 9 a.m. until 2 p.m. And it's a collaboration between Northeast University School of Criminology and Criminal Justice and the Office of Returning Citizens. The executive director is here with me now, David Mayo. Hi, we're back. Um, there's, There's a little bit of time here and I'll probably have to have you back because this particular event and you talked about it being a jump off point for something bigger. So what are your objectives for Saturday? And then where would you like to see this go to, considering the population? Because I know you said you want at least 80% of the people to be returning citizens. And not just people talking about the problem, but actually getting the resources together and the people who are providing the resources together with each other. So what is your overall vision and where do you see this leading to?
0: So my overall vision is um, the same as my vision for the Office of Returning Citizens. It's engage, engagement, mm-hmm. equipping and empowering returning citizens. Um, we got a, a lot of returning citizens rightfully so, do not trust our, our system, our government and the programs that have been set in place for them. So my first goal is to get them engaged build their trust earn earn their trust back and and engage them in the process of developing this system that that we have called the office of returning citizens this is a brand new brand new program when i when i took the office last year in august there was so much hurt and so much disparity over what had happened in the previous years and so i had to literally take the grunt uh, the hits for all the things that it wasn't before, mm-hmm. and then set a tone and me- a method of going about restoring, restoring the office of returning citizens and building some equity with our community,
2: mm-hmm.
0: because so much hurt was done. And so, my, one of my first goals was to get into the community and really, really show them that that we are engaged with them again, and to get them engaged, not only with our office, but engaged in their in their independence, and their equality, and and their empowerment of their lives. The second one is to um, equip them, not just give them resources, not become a referral agency, not point them into the right direction, but <coughs> actually give them. You all know, right? Go
2: ahead.
0: Actually, give them the tools so that they can become self-advocates. It is one thing to to feed a man, but it's another thing to teach a man how to create his own food or to or to fish for himself. And so the other goal is to is to equip our returning citizens with the tools that they need to go out and to build equity in their own lives and to stand in a stable and and found in a strengthened community and say, I got it.
2: So there's a couple of things. The assumption, okay, they did the crime, so why should I care? So why should anybody care, especially those people who have been so-called
0: victims of maybe some of the people who are incarcerated? Why should they care? Well, first and foremost, because every man deserves redemption. That's first and foremost. Everyone has, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh-oh. Every one of us. He's about
2: to preach now. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Go ahead. And, and the reality of it is those of us who haven't been caught, have been caught and are, are, are being restored, those of us who haven't got caught means that we just didn't get caught. And but the also- reality...
2: People are going to come back into the community, and do you want them to come back with the same stuff?
0: Well, the reality of it is is they shouldn't come back with the same stuff. If we do our job right, we're, we're going to equip them to be model, to be better citizens. We're going to give them the tools to build their lives. Um, I'm not expecting someone to come back the way that, that they went in, but the reality of it is is we don't prepare them to mm-hmm. come back to our community. Most, most um, of our returning citizens are worse off coming home than they were when they went in.
2: Because mm, it traumatized. I mean, you wouldn't lock up your dog like people are locked up for years. And one of the things that, you know, talking to. Um, oh, boy, we've got two minutes. One of the things that I was amazed is some of the things that we take for granted that people have been formerly incarcerated. Like they said they had to get used to not wearing sand flip flops in the shower. Mm-hmm. That they, they had to get used to not having people um, open in the bathroom. And so what are the, some of the things to encourage people to come who have dealt with that, who are still dealing with the trauma that that need these services? We've got about a couple of minutes. So, so get them to come out on Saturday.
0: So the, the thing that's encouraging is is now we have not only the resources, but now we have returning citizens who have lived experience, Who, and when I say returning citizens, those who have come home from incarceration and who have started living their life. Those people doing the work, those people understanding the, the limitations, those people understanding the pains and the frustrations and even the trauma and the mental issues that returning citizens come home to or are coming home with. And so those people are now doing the work, those people are now creating the groups, those people are now engaged in helping returning citizens get to a better life. And so therein lies the, the truth go. of it, the truth <laughs> of you what's going on.
2: so much. i got to get you on for a full hour now. And thank you very much for being here with us. Um, we got to go. we got to show the credits. But Saturday... October 28th, 9 a.m. Northeastern University. There's an Eventbrite Pathways to Reentry. You can still register, especially if you need these services. I'm your, I'm your host, Sharon Hinton. Want to give a, a real prayer and a shout out to Stacy Borden, who has the New Beginnings Reentry Services. She is currently praying for someone whose life she saved. She started a program. She was formerly incarcerated. Is a returning citizen, helping other women being returning citizens. Take care of yourself and each other. God bless. The
3: The King's sermon.